Amanda was 29 when she was convicted of felony possession. This would be her first conviction, which resulted in her shortest prison stint, about 10 months. The charge was having marijuana in her car just before it was decriminalized in Oregon. During her incarceration at Coffee Creek, she saw the service dogs and their handlers. It felt odd walking down the echoing halls surrounded by bars and wire reinforced glass. Everyone is dressed in dark navy prison blue and among all this uniformity and cleanliness, there are dogs being guided through the halls. Like four-legged slices of normality being walked through a concrete nightmare. And not just any dogs. Golden Retrievers, Labradors, Shepherds, beautiful mountain dogs like the ones Amanda grew up with on her family farm in Hood River. There was no point in applying to the dog program though. She wouldn't be behind bars long enough to raise a puppy. At least she didn't think she would. After Amanda was released, she tried to clean up her life. There wasn't much to clean up, honestly. Amanda wasn't a drug addict before she went inside. She just smoked a little weed on the weekends. But now that she was on parole, she kept her reputation spotless. No alcohol, no drugs, no unnecessary risk. Bosses already don't want to hire a felon, even if the manager at Arby's smokes more weed than you ever did. But Amanda was determined. She believed that building a long, clean work history would wash out any stain. But then there was the opioid epidemic. Amanda wasn't hooked on legal meds. Her roommate was. The year Amanda was convicted again, ironically, was the same year Oregon doctors were audited by the state and found to be overprescribing criminal amounts of hydrocodone. We'll leave a link to the Portland Mercury article if you want to read about it. It was legal. It came with a prescription. But Amanda's roommate still agreed to get rid of it to go cold turkey with Amanda. They were both on parole and they made a pact to be each other's watchdog. They decided to throw away anything, legal or illegal, that could lead to trouble. They even included caffeine on their apartment ban list and wrote a provision that they would drink more water every day. To get rid of the prescription opioids, Amanda's roommate went to a cousin who had broken his kneecap at his part-time job and was still uninsured. He could use the legal hydrocodone, and a man and a roommate could cover rent for the month, since Arby's only got them halfway there. Amanda agreed to drive, and the roommate bagged the hydrocodone in its original prescription bag. You probably see where this is going. A woman who was convicted of using marijuana a few years before it was legal got convicted again for facilitating a drug deal a drug deal involving medication doctors were giving away hand over fist. In the U.S., if you try to use drugs as a currency, you're a felon. Unless you've contributed to a political party recently, then you're a sackler. Regardless, a parole violation can result in up to 24 months in prison. Drug trafficking is 10 years to life. Amanda declined to share the exact length of her sentence at Coffee Creek, but she laughed and said, 
I could raise 10 of these dogs and I'll still be here. When she said it, she was scratching the head of a gorgeous golden retriever with big brown eyes. For context, it takes two years for a prisoner to raise a service dog. An episode exploring the ins and outs of service dog training in prisons would be a very short episode. And there are plenty of documentaries and interviews on YouTube about the dog training programs. Instead, we want to talk about the value of redemption for the inmates, for the animals, and for the people receiving the service dogs in the end. We'll start with a few myths. Myth one. As Americans, we're taught that all criminals should be hungry for redemption. Once they have a felony on their record, they should do whatever work we give them. Should this include companion animals? Myth two, why are prisoners raising these dogs in the first place? Shouldn't medical insurance or veteran affairs cover the cost of PTSD animals? Myth three, historically, both criminals and soldiers come from low-income families. What's the difference, morally, between the criminal raising the dog and a soldier receiving the dog? We're going to get to our miss, but first I want to ask Joe about his brief time at Coffee Creek. I kind of want to talk a little bit about morality and, and the drug war for two seconds. It's not that every prisoner in prison is on drug crimes. I think it's like you know, drugs and petty theft and other things. But in your opinion, Todd, when you think about like why people get convicted, are there things that we punish harsher that actually that that you think should be less punishable, like like that deserve less time? I, I think the the big one being the legalizing of marijuana. I think the people that, and I think even before. I've never been a weed person at anything, but I, I thought some of those, some of those convictions, the the length of the terms, and I follow a lot of documentaries. You know, I'm a true crime um, enthusiast. <laughs> some people, some right. people went away, away twice as long for marijuana sales as they did for murdering somebody. Twice as long, Joe. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and and I also. And I also think that they th throw the book at people with, with lower incomes and lower social class. And the people with, who are middle class and up get a, a tiny percentage of the time that, that the poor person got. Okay. We, we might have someday a episode about the statistics of conviction. Um, because what you say has a lot of truth to it. And the way judges assign time and the way um, prosecutors pursue harsher sentences, it really, it, it, it oftentimes comes down to the person, their socioeconomic background, how they respond. Um, but needless to say, uh, Todd is right. Like, like it doesn't matter if you are harsh on crime because you're a politician or, or you um, are one of these hip, uh, hippy dippy Portlanders who thinks that, um, the way to get someone to stop being an addict is actually to uh, hook them up with resources to do that. Um, whichever you side you fall on, the one thing that is certain is a lot of people were convicted on marijuana charges. 
And so you had people serving time for something that was totally legal. Um, and we're not going to make this whole episode about like, is it moral to demand labor of people in prison while they're in prison for something that's legal? That that kind of like really gets into a question about society itself. <laughs> um, we're not kind of we're not focusing on that today. That just happens to be our um, our narrative subject today. So uh, Amanda was basically in for like like it, it it sounds like what we just read was a narrative rationalization like like we took her story directly and then just you know like like oh you know telling me what, like we we fell for everything she said. Um, while I was volunteering at Coffee Creek, which was the women's um, prison in um, Wilsonville. Um, give, give some context on that. So this is a newer facility. It's 2001, and it's in Wilsonville, Oregon. It's like a suburb of Portland. It's pretty much touching Portland, right? It borders Portland, and there's about 1,600 uh, women prisoners in there. So what, what's the, is it a maximum, or is it, do you know? I mean, so you, what were you doing there? Are you dating over there? What's going on, Joe? Why are you? <laughs> Look, you, you find <laughs> what's going you on. Find wives and attention wherever you can. <laughs> Do you remember our prison letters uh, episode? That's why we started it. No, I'm kidding. It's not. <laughs> it is a medium security prison, and um, it's. I I was invited there because at the time I was running part of the um the public speaking nonprofit, uh, like an arm of it, basically, uh, like I was running my county. Um, and I was invited there because a lot of these women had trouble going through the program because they weren't being given the resources and they had trouble sort of proving that they had done the work. They had to have basically an official of the nonprofit show up. And I, at the time was that official. Um, and so, so you were doing what? You were doing t- public speaking stuff or communication? So yeah, what were you teaching? public speaking and communication. I, w- I was giving tips on speaking and, and uh, while they're kind of auditing their books and, and seeing that they were, you know, keeping track of what work they had done. Um, public speaking, if you, if you get good at communicating and you go through the program, it actually lowers recidivism rate for prisoners dramatically. So the reason I was there, it, it wasn't just because um, my... The, the program I was working asked me to do it, Toastmasters. It is because I, I read about how much being able to communicate verbally helps people in prison. Like it 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 makes your your likelihood of of going back to prison extremely low. Because instead of doing a crime, you can communicate and network with people and and, you know, uh explain your circumstances to whoever you're talking to. Well, I'm sure. What was it like, though? The experience for you to go in there. I mean, was it a little bit nervous? Was it? I mean, it's a. It's kind of a scary thing, right? <laughs> and how are you? How are you taken in by the prisoners and the staff? Do they treat you like you are a visitor, or do they treat you like? Are they cold? Or are they warm? How? They are extraordinarily friendly. Um, it, it it there's the the sort of classic uh, um, the cliche, which is. You know, the bars slam behind you as you're walking in and suddenly you realize that, you know, there's no getting out unless you, you know, get the attention of the, the guard who is behind the glass. I mean, like it, 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 you're kind of let off the leash once you get inside. We had a um, somebody who was a more experienced um, volunteer who let us in. 
but they're kind of left on their own. You're not escorted by the, by a warden or something. People just kind of know who you are, that you're you know there to help and that you're an official of some sort, and you're you're left alone. But you're kind of left off the leash. You just sort of wander the halls, hoping you you know the person you're following knows their way there. And we went and met with about forty women, and they were the friendliest, like like the. They were so friendly and so welcoming that I couldn't believe that other people hadn't been volunteering this whole time just to sort of like, you don't get that kind of reception from other people. Like when you volunteer at a prison. Yeah. Um, like like the, the documentary we, we watched about training service dogs, that woman got more fight and kickback from asking prisoners to do work than I ever saw. And I, I think obviously that comes down to you know, what program it is and, and who you're talking to and, and why you're there. Um, and so many of them, the, the reason we kind of went with the, we, we could have done that narrative about anything in the documentary about prison dogs. Uh, the prisoner was, you know, they, they were kind of stuck with violent criminals. And I believe that was a choice by the person making the documentary because the, by and large, the majority of women I spoke to yeah. in prison training dogs they were um, drug offenders, and many of them were in on crimes that had either the sentences had been relaxed in Oregon because people realized the three strikes law was just imprisoning a ton of people for almost no reason. Like it was, it was, yeah, three strikes of prescription drugs that the doctors are handing out for free, or three strikes on a drug that had been legalized. So we went from an extraordinarily harsh Nixon era kind of law. And we just filled the prisons with it. Um, I'm going to try to keep that part of my experience out of this equation too much. Because <laughs> we're going to be asking a lot of moral questions today. And and I, I that's really what I wanted to talk to Todd about. The reason why we didn't just quietly nod to each other after saying, hey, did you see that documentary? Yes, I did. Neat. Um, it's because we want to ask the question of, um, you know, is... Is it right to ask someone else to basically train a companion for someone else? A lot of these people needed the dogs. There's blind dogs. For service dogs, there are the blind dogs who, you know, help people walk, especially if they are um, not just fully blind, but like just seeing impaired. You can get a dog under certain circumstances. There are dogs for seizures. Um, You can train a dog to where um, if you have um, chronic seizures your dog can alert you to them before you know they're happening. Your, your dog will come over and like put its head on your chest or check on you or, or go for help um, or just comfort you. Uh, and the one that we watched the documentary for that we will link off for everyone else, they were the PTSD dogs. Um, uh, veterans who would come back with extreme PTSD, um, they would have dogs trained to see that they are in trouble, see that they are thrashing and having nightmares, see that they are going into a um, fugue state or a combative state, and the dogs would distract them or or alert them to it, like to to raise their attention to it. I never believed in any of that stuff. I I never did. And I always always thought it was nice that, you know, ex-veterans get get dogs to help them. And I didn't understand it personally. I... Until I, I, you know, I was kind of going through some stressful things, and I, I was with my wife. We were visiting a town called McMinnville, and there was this husky dog named Lola, and it was in this gift shop, 
and it was a just such a quiet calming and i just remember sitting down on the ground and it wasn't that dog that hyper it was that real calm you know some of the huskies are just really calm and the blue eyes and i sat down with her and pet her and i just all my anxiety went away joe you know and i didn't forget about my problems but i just felt better to the point that I left the store and had to go back and sit with her some more, <laughs> just because it just it just felt so good. I, I can't explain it. So I'm thinking, well, this was must be how these people feel with these animals. It's just this very calming, loving comfort. Right. You need to go back for some more Lola time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, I should have stolen that dog. <laughs> uh. Some of the other functions the dogs give, some of them are trained to like grab things from the fridge or like pull you across the sidewalk safely or, you know, like very concrete things to measure. When we talk about PTSD dogs, Todd is totally right, which is like, it's hard to get it from the outside. Um, I actually was on a plane um, a couple of months ago and I heard somebody mention a service dog, like, like somebody was trying to bring a small dog on the plane and somebody complained in the seat next to me and they're like what's a ptsd dog do why don't you just get a stuffed animal <laughs> and a when we say comfort animal i think it kind of gets used as like it, it, we pretend like that person is soft because they need a pet with them like oh you know i'll just bring my my comfort ostrich or my comfort horse like i've i've heard derisive comments toward it but really what it acts as is like if you go to therapy, sometimes you'll be brought through guided meditation or you'll be given focus. Like you'll be, you'll be told to focus on an object or focus on your body. That's a big one is you, you plant your feet and you ground yourself and you, you focus on your own body and your own breathing and things. A, a comfort animal isn't there because you need to squeeze something fluffy and feel better. A comfort animal is there exactly for what Todd was describing, which is it it draws your attention while your anxiety is trying to tell you that somebody is going to shoot at you. Like it, it really provides a narrow focus for your brain to sort of like zone in on. And the reason why dogs work so well is because they are emotive. Like it's, it's like having, I mean, just, just imagine for just a second, except not annoying. Imagine having like a comedian on a leash in front of you and they're constantly telling jokes. Uh, like like something that yeah. is going to keep your attention regardless because it is just full of emotion and it, it is expressive. You know, when I went through my own addiction problems that I've had, um, one of the things I learned in my treatment was to to pretend you had a, let's say Joe, pretend you had a little Joe with you, a, a six-year-old little Joe, your exact twin, and you took him everywhere with you. Where would you take him? Would you take him to drug houses? Would you take him to get drunk? Would you take him to get high? Or would you protect him? And I kind of think that with these these kind of dogs, I think, and there's no way to do a statistic on this, but I wonder how many lives those dogs have saved, Joe. Because people, you know, especially I, th- I think of people with mental health issues or people with, who, who've been to war and back, that they don't want to pass, they don't want to die because they want to. They they love that dog too so much. They love that dog more than they love themselves, and are willing to stay alive for that dog. Oh, absolutely. Um, reading articles about service dogs and and seeing the documentary, that comes up over and over again. People talk about 
not only does it allow them to to have their freedom back, it it it's hard to do harm to yourself when there is something that is incredibly loving sitting at your feet waiting for you to you know to to be better to to go for a walk or or just to you know to pay attention and vul- and vulnerable the the reason i i, I kind of threw this idea at joe for this show was i was watching a, a documentary about and and i think the reason why we see on on tv and the documentaries it's always people with more um violent crimes i think that's more interesting i think it's more interesting when someone's on death row and they're taking care of a cat right and, and that's what i saw i was watching i was watching this really graphic you know hbo documentaries are <laughs> i mean you gotta you gotta turn them off sometimes they're just a little too graphic <laughs> but there was it was these people on death row and it showed these men who had done horrific things slit the throats of of mother and daughter horrible sexual crimes and you saw them taking care of these these kind of just um house cats and and they were t- treating them just with so much love and caring that if you didn't know what this person had done you would think by the way they treat this animal they're incapable of harming anyone especially not another human being do you th- okay that's a good question do you think that when people commit violent crimes is it is there like a um is does it always is it always accompanied with a disorder? It's an interesting question. We had an episode where we talked about like the Hatfields and the McCoys and history kind of found out that like, I think it was the, the McCoys had like a, um, a tumor in their head that made them violent. Uh, and like almost all of them, it was, it was a chronic thing. And I've read so much history now about like people who are capable of violence that, I mean, the, the people who are chronically violent and they do it without controlling themselves. I wonder if that is just always a disorder, like like of some sort. I think so. And and I think it's, um, you know, I work in the construction business now, and I think a lot of the young men, I would say over 90% of them, have some mental health. There's a reason that they're doing this kind of work, and they're not in college, yeah. and they're not, they're using their bodies more than they're using their brains. And it's not just because of their age. It's, it's there's there's something that's, that's either trauma that's happened to them or where the, their clock just doesn't tick the same anymore. And I think it, I think it's, well, then when you add alcohol and drugs, Joe, it really muddies this whole thing up because then yeah. you make even worse decisions and then you're quicker to anger when you're under the influence of drugs. And that, that doesn't make an excuse for it, but I think certain people, they can't do drugs because they, 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 they will lash out violently. And then when you get into to what their situation is financially, um, what they have to look forward to or, or not look forward to. Yeah, I, I think so. <laughs> I also don't want this whole episode to sound like we were morally forgiving criminals. If you have violent tendencies, you should have the wherewithal and the support network to go seek help and to, you know, put in the work and fix that. You're not given a pass because you have violent tendencies and you it comes from a disorder. It just means that, you know, we we end up warehousing a lot of people with disorders in prisons, um, and then we give them kittens. <laughs> not not necessarily all the time. Um, so, do you want to talk about? I'm happy for yeah. the animals. My love is. My, I don't have any. <laughs> I have more compassion for the animals. I'm thinking, how lucky are they? 
<laughs> they have yeah. this person who gives them the undivided attention who would absolutely kill for them. I think that, that those prisoners who are death row with those cats, if anyone touched one one hair on those cats, they're definitely going to get killed. <laughs> <laughs> There was yeah, there's a there's a part in the documentary where um, one of the guys is like, they're trying to convince him to to let somebody else train his dog for a while. That that is part of the program is you you have to take your dog to another prisoner. Say you know, here's the command list. Here's here's you know how to raise it, and they have to socialize it with other people. Otherwise, the dog basically only learns from one person and only does commands for that one person. And these prisoners, like the, these guys that have done violent crimes, are, are like, no, I'm not going to give my dog to somebody else. It could eat something off their prison floor. They may not be paying attention to it. Like, they, they really yeah. are extraordinarily protective in an interesting way. Um, so, like, to take things chronologically, um, not everyone can be a trainer for these animals. Um in the documentary, who who got a kitten? Like like we'll we'll start there. When you were watching uh, your documentary, was there like uh, an application process, or did they just give out kittens to anyone on death row? No, I think there's processes for everything. You have to you know talk to the psychiatrist and do the whole bit, right? Yeah, it's not. There's a process. It's, it's it, everything in prison's structured. You know your food, what time you get up, where, what you do for work. There's paperwork. There, there's an application so yeah you have to and it's an honor you have to have the 12 months of no write-ups or whatever they no disciplinary action so it's something you could lose and it's something that they fight to protect right i forgot to even include that part that you have to be on extremely good behavior to get an animal in prison in in at coffee creek they mentioned that it um i believe that's where i heard that it it has a reduction on your sentence that if you do a, a really good job training a service animal, it's looked at as good behavior. Like the, it, it reduces your time. Um, and on top of that, it is your labor. It, giving a prisoner something cute and fluffy to keep them company in their cell. We, we kind of want to point out that that's not what this is about. Like it's, it's way more intense than just prisoners playing with puppies in their jail cells they the amount of work that goes into it it's 24 7 and it's not like you just get something to pet and love on and to feed treats it's constant because you have to train the animal to be aware of certain warning signs all the time and you have to train the animal to you know respond to them in very specific ways and you have to train them to ignore other stimuli so you you actually it's the opposite. You can't love on them too much. You can't let other prisoners like show them constant affection. It's it's like when you see a service dog in the mall and you're not allowed to pet it or or to give it treats. Same thing. It's it's they have very specific stimuli, very specific commands and keys and and it everything in their world falls under that umbrella. Everything around them is going to fall under that, like, you know, certain specific set of circumstances when they get food, when they get pets, when they get spoken to. So it, it is very labor intensive. It is very attention intensive. And it, it is a labor. The, the reason why these prisoners are oftentimes not washing clothes or like, you know, mopping floors while they have a prison dog at the same time, it's because this is their job. Like it, it, it becomes, you know, the thing they do in prison. 
It would seem like seem like what you're talking about before, you know, what you were kind of talking about the comfort part of it. That seemed to be a, that would be a good distraction, I think, to make the clock and the days tick by and go by faster, right? If you if you were busy twenty four seven training a, a, a seeing eye dog, right? So you're helping people, and it's I could see how that could give you a real boost to your self esteem. Do you ever wonder what happened to the dogs that flunk out of training? <laughs> Not just for this, but just service dogs in general. Well, they don't make the cut. Well, my mom adopted one because her and my her my sisters are both like 4-H kids grew up, and they, they used to train C&I dogs, and then they would get the ones that <laughs> we would adopt the ones that didn't make it. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. Did so they, te- okay, did they know any tricks? No, they were the dumbest ones of them. I mean, they're the, you know what I mean? Because all dogs are not, cre- <laughs> like all people, all dogs are not created equal, you know? They, they, usually it was like they, 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 they're they too addicted to food or something, you know? They, if they see a hot dog at the mall, they just ditch their person who's who's uh, blind. They <laughs> <laughs> said that way. <laughs> so they're sweet, but they're dumb. We'll put it that way. There is a clip of uh like this online meme of a dog at a dog show and they they put out bowls of food and treats and things along the the catwalk on either side of them and they're supposed to walk past without a leash without even stopping and there's an adorable video of a dog at one of these shows that stops and eats every single dish along the way like it is just (laughs) full playtime and you see the owners first they're like shrieking at them like no come stop don't and then they just start laughing they're like yeah obviously this is, it's a dog <laughs> i was i was in O'Hare, O'Hare airport and it was a really one of those really bad traffic days where there was a huge snowstorm and um flights were delayed and i'll never forget this so we're all in line and everyone's upset everyone's stressed because we don't know if we're going to get our flights even going to take off or what's going on and this they start screaming at us from the security that there's a one of the dogs is going to come through the bomb dog and everyone needs to shut up and not pet the dog and this is i mean they're screaming at us thousands of us we're being scolded we haven't done anything yet and and this this golden retriever comes out this thing must have been friggin' 15 years old look like it's about ready to die it wa- it kind of waddles through the crowd, you know what I mean? It, it looks like it's pretty much senile. It sniffs one lady's butt, and that was it. <laughs> it walks away, <laughs> and we were all just like like horrified. We were afraid to even look at it because we'd been getting screamed at for <laughs> ten minutes. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I don't think this dog is 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 in its prime anymore. It could smell any bombs, Todd. That's that's right on. Almost all dogs of any service type, if they don't work out, they go up for adoption. And the rate for adoption for um, potential service dogs for the the failures is actually pretty high. Like it's it's not as bad as I thought it would be. I assume people would rather have mutts from the pound over a a failed service dog, but that's not true. Some places charge them. I was reading a Boston article where they were charging people for mostly trained adult dogs would go for about $3,000. Um, but they, the the training point where they would fail is about 18 months. That when they start training these dogs, they start with you know commands, they start with paying attention, they start with where they're supposed to be. Around 18 months, that's when they start like testing them for what you said, which is attention. Um, it's can they ignore food and do their job? Can they... If, if they're given harsh stimuli, like one of the things they, they talked about in the article is shaking cans of pennies 
they would they would make these harsh rattling noises next to them while they were giving them commands and they would see if if they actually follow through well, that's um, a pretty sizable investment Char- uh don't you think joe 18 months before you know if you're even got something so that's that's a pretty big financial and time commitment absolutely and and i I believe that's probably why some genius at some point put two and two together and said, hey, why not offload this potential huge risk of failure, this 18-month investment, onto prisoners who effectively don't have anything better to do? And it seems to have worked as a program. Like, like just from an outside observer who is definitely not a professional in the field, it, like it, it, it's these people who are in prison, they go through that 18 months... And at the end of it, they have just as rigor- rigorous of a test. Like they, they actually have outside professionals come in and coach them through the dog training process. Um, the the coach will tell them, here's how to train a dog. Here's what you're doing right. Here's what you're doing wrong. You need to socialize the dog more. You need to train it more on these types of commands. You need to give it more time in the yard. And at the end of those 18 months, if you don't pass the professional standards of you know these these people working these programs whether it's somebody who represents autism or anxiety, um, diabetes, epilepsy, narcolism, uh, uh, sorry, uh, narcolepsy, if you don't train your dog specific to that thing and the representative who represents, if they don't think you're up to snuff, you've just wasted 18 months. Um, Some prisons do have uh, a system where if you trained it and the person signs off on it saying you did all the work you could and the dog still failed, then you still get your, you know, your, your kudos, your, your time off, whatever your deal is for. Um, I imagine in Texas, they probably, they may not have that. They may just say, well, you wasted 18 months. Um, and, and the question is why do this? Like, like if you have PTSD or, you know, uh, an injury of some sort, or you have, if you need a service dog, why go to prisoners for it when you could just go to um, you know, like the National Service Animal Registry or like if you can go to your hospital and say, hook me up with a service dog, you know, what's the cost if if you just pay for a service dog outright? Like, Todd, you're not blind as far as I know and neither am I, but if you and I decide to wear a blindfold for a fashion statement and we just wanted a blind dog for fun, um, what do you think the cost of that would be? I'm trying to do the math here. I'm thinking, geez, a couple of years invested. I, I'm thinking $5,000. I, I don't know. Um, it's it's about the cost of a, a, a used car, a used to new car. Um, it's uh, r- this from the National Service Animal Registry. They say the minimum is usually around $17,000, and it goes up to forty or 50000 Oh wow, that's a lot more than I thought. I guess yeah. I didn't really think about the financial part of it, but it, it, yeah, I mean, for that to feed and take care of, and yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of time too. I I think it's a lot of that's unmeasurable, right? How much time the person and love the person puts into that, right? And when you see these grown men and women in prison cry when their dogs are they they pass and they are adopted by a service member or they're they're given to somebody with a disorder i mean like you can tell they just had their child take it away like it is crazy 
I mean, obviously, ache. there's yeah. going to be a lot of emotional investment. Yeah. But when it's all you have, and that person relies on you, when I, you know, I had a cat for 18 years, and and I loved that cat to death, and and I just loved her. I mean, she's her name's Sarah. She was a great cat, and and uh, I was trauma traumatized by her death more so than I was one of some family members have died. And a lot of it was just that her needing me every morning every for 18 years, every single morning I fed her food and she meowed and I fed her and I got so attached to her just from that that little vulnerability and that needing thing. <laughs> and she was right. with me from from being homeless to 4,000 square foot houses. She was through the, all the whole things and she was the one consistent that loved me for 18 years straight every single day. So I can see that if you're a prisoner and you had you're of lower social class and you haven't been loved by your parents or your siblings or or your spouses and partners to have someone love you genuinely unconditionally like an animal and then you to 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 train it and learn a new skill and then you get that status in prison and and you have that love and then it's taken away from you that that'd be a pretty tough divorce a, a lot of these people have kids on the outside like when they go to prison they have children and so I mean, not only is there the emotional component of doing that, but like, what is that animal being a proxy for as far as love? Like what, you know, getting letters from your family, realizing you're not going to see them forever. And then you look over and there's like a small puppy in your cell and that that becomes sort of like the, the proxy for your love. Having that go to somebody who has a disorder. I mean, it's it's the worthiest of causes, but that that would the 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 amount of pain to go through to do that i mean i hope it's well we'll we'll get into whether it's worth it or not i i think the whole world is going to basically like do you feel like everybody just assumes it's worth it because prisoners like we value their time less like yes it's worth it because somebody who effectively would be otherwise washing laundry or pressing license plates that you know this is a better service than that to me, in my heart, it makes me it makes me think it's healing them. It, it's it's actually rehabilitating them. And I, I don't know if I'm just brainwashed by they have that show on TV, that Pitbull show or the Pitbull Rescue, or the the woman who runs it has had a tough life and she brings guys out of prison and she has them work with dogs and they become part of you know they become parts of society because of the, through through animals. The, the, their communications are poor. You know, you're going there helping people with Toastmasters. Everyone who's in prison, the vast majority of them, have communication issues. They don't get along with people on the outside. So now they're inside. And the problem with that is now they're in there with a bunch of people who don't communicate well. <laughs> right. Who who get angrier first and, and don't. So I, I think it, yeah. if that answers your question, I'm rambling. but No, I think that's a perfect answer. I, I think that in a way that, you know, working in the wood shop or pressing license plate will not rehabilitate you because it's just forcing you to do a job on the inside when you didn't want to work a job on the outside. I, I think if you, yeah, hand somebody a, a, something that's going to need nurturing and raising, especially if somebody did a violent crime and suddenly they have to nurture something and they, they aren't used to doing that. I mean, that is at its core a very rehabilitating thing to do. Their self-esteem booms. You can see it. They're proud of their animal, and they're proud of their training. Yeah. Um, there was a moment in the documentary. Uh, the the veteran who came in uh, to get his service animal, 
he didn't believe it would help him. Uh, he had very, very severe PTSD, and he did not think a dog would make the the boom noises in his head go away. Um, he went in and, and he basically got the dog, took it a few times to like, he couldn't go to Walmart or Target because there's too many people and too much noise. And he said he was able to go shopping for the first time because he had a service dog that was paying attention to him the whole time. And he, he, he used this phrase. He said that when he was in prison getting this dog, he said, these guys are just like the guys I grew up with. The difference between them and me is I didn't get caught. And that was from uh, a chief warrant officer. <laughs> it's the, you know, I, I went into the army while I was actually still in high school. And uh, it's called a split option. So I, I went away to my basic training, my junior summer of high school. And I came back because I got out of it and came back to, to high, finish high school, then go back and do the, serve the rest of my time. And I, I do believe that. I th- there was, it was the early 90s when I went in. And there were people at that time that had a choice between going to the service or going to jail. <laughs> right. That was like uh, the judge was giving you an option and they had to think about it. So, <laughs> and, and every single one of those guys, and there wasn't a bunch of them. There's probably five of them in my company. My company is about, um, I think a company's 200 people, 200 soldiers. There was probably that many that I knew of. Maybe there were more. You know, they, they may not disclose all that. Back then, they kind of did disclose everything. Um, I think a lot of them regretted. I remember them saying, "I should have went to jail. It would have been more fun than this." <laughs> <laughs> so, I, yes, I think when you're 17 or 18 and you're from inner city or some now rural America, where that where you know methamphetamines and stuff, I I think it's a you know, working at Arby's for minimum wage and selling drugs or, you know, partying. It's a hard partying, hard drinking crowd, and that can lead to criminal life as well. Right. So, yeah, it's 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 it's, it's poor people. It's the old, you know, rich kids go to college and poor guys go to, to the service. And then it's super weird that we ask the people who didn't go to the service who ended up in prison, could you please raise these dogs to comfort the people who came back from the service? It's just a weird like like the the for this episode I absolutely love the program. I love the dogs. I, I love that it exists and I love the service it provides. But to me the, the the reason why I struggle with this so much is because it's asking low socioeconomic income people who went to prison instead of the military to help comfort like use use 18 months of their time to help comfort that same pool of people who came back from the service. They, they chose option B and they came back and, and now it's the low socioeconomic class comforting the low socioeconomic class because of what they went through. And that is, that is so bizarre. <laughs> I never thought of it like that, but you're definitely right. Right. Um, all we got we gotta help each other out we don't have any we don't have any love or or financial support from our family so that's what we get right your family isn't gonna help you it sucks the the government has cut its safety nets they're not gonna help you uh corporations aren't gonna help you so what you have is somebody from your own background handing you a puppy It's just not fair. Yeah. <laughs> it's just not fair. Life is not fair. It's not even. 
even in in first world countries it's just yeah no i i i I know that i keep raising this as if it's like um uh, um as if i'm trying to like poop on the whole program but i really like it i just think it was an interesting sort of like when i saw that comment when when you know the um warrant officer mark said that in the show i was like oh wait a second that is very very strange (laughs) um now, I do want to correct myself just a little bit on this. Um, one of our myths is, is it true? Like, what's the difference between the people in prison and those in the military? Um, I went to a couple of sources for this. Um, there's a New York Times article we'll link off to, which is about military enlistment numbers. And then there's also just a... Um, uh, I don't remember which college I got it from. I think it was Syracuse. But there is um, a study that we're going to have in our links. And... Basically, the cynic in me sees that exchange that um, someone whose time we don't value anymore because they did something violent against America gives something back to someone whose time we do value because they did something violent for America. (laughs) But optimistically, (laughs) we can see this exchange and see redemption and acceptance on both sides. And if you look at the stats... A lot of low-income socioeconomic brackets do end up serving, but in recent years, like within the past you know decade or so, the numbers of service people who go in because their family served is going higher and higher. It is climbing. Um, so it, it it's interesting that it used to be you know you you back in like you know the you know post World War II era, you would have so many people who were just like purely they were out of options, so they went into the army. Like you were talking about, you get a choice. Do you want to go to prison or do you want to serve? Now we're getting into almost like um, legacy service where you have, you know, a huge chunk of the people in the service are, you know, their father served, their mother served, you know, their their uncles, whatever. And then a, a, you know, maybe an equally large chunk of people are there because they were out of options. So it's it's making sort of a more interesting dichotomy. I think I think making your point too, Joe, is the draft for Vietnam. I mean, do you remember what the what the line was, right? For 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 if you got drafted in Vietnam or didn't, as a eighteen year old male. Uh, what was the line? If you went to college, you didn't have to go to Vietnam. That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, I mean, like literally, you it, it is a socioeconomic that, that couldn't line. be more clear. <laughs> yeah, that couldn't be more clear, right? <laughs> So there's something I wanted to hit on at the end of this because I am an introvert and I feel awkward at almost everything I do in life. Um, I, I've seen people in, especially here in Texas, I've seen people be thanked for their service. Um, if they have like um, a, a marine license plate liner or they have like a bumper sticker or, or you know something indicates that they were in the service. I've seen people go up to them at like Wendy's and say, thank you for your service. Can I pay for your meal? Um, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. You get those old guys that wear the, you got those old guys like my grandfather wears his Navy hat. You know, he's, you know, those guys, right? They got that. <laughs> right. <laughs> they got the, whatever ship they were on or, Oh, they love that. Show. Oh yeah. I go out with my guy from my church and he's a ex air force, um, you know, life from the air force and they will be sitting and people come up and pay for our same thing come up and say hi to him and like a celebrity kind of kiss the ring and everything. I always like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. 
I was I was gonna ask how do he's you? U- he's used to it. He doesn't even act surprised anymore. He, he just says thank you. He doesn't go gush and gush about it. He just. Says, <laughs> I I love to see it, and also at the same time, I am one of the most awkward people in public that you can possibly have. So I I might mumble something, but there are other people who are very good at at thanking somebody for their service, and they. One of the things they the reason I bring this up is in the documentary. Um, uh, warrant officer Mark Beam says that a lot of people have thanked him for his service, but this is one of the first times somebody has actually repaid his service. And he he refers to you know the person who trained his service dog for him. He says that he's he's gotten a tool that will literally reduce his PTSD, and that that is a way to repay a service instead of just thanking. Isn't that something? That's that's showing people that you care instead of just telling them. I really like that. You've been listening to The Reengineered You. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You mean the world to us. You can connect with us at www.re-engineeredyou.com. That's where we have research links, show notes, and feedback, and blog articles for each of our episodes. We're not experts in anything, but we've got an opinion on everything.